to turn with us in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Uh, We have just a couple of weeks left here in our series on the Proverbs, considering the paths of the righteous, the paths of wisdom and righteousness and holiness that our God calls us to walk and equips us to walk in this world that is so often filled with shadows and darkness and sin. And here in chapter 30, uh, Agur, son of Jekeh, considers uh, what it is that God would teach us in his world and through his creation about glory. We won't read the whole chapter, but we will turn uh, to these three Uh, little proverbs where he uh, looks out at the world uh, to see what he can learn about the glory and majesty of God. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 through 31. This is God's word. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave, when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. Let's pray that God would teach us this morning. Lord, give us eyes to see the wisdom that you would communicate to us this morning. Lord, and so work it in us through the power of your Spirit that we would not be a people who merely think about them or repeat those wise words to others, or that we would be a people whose hearts are shaped by your wisdom and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are a people who long for glory. You can look out all over the place and find evidence for this. I mean, just the Olympics. I, I don't care about the Olympics at all, but I cared about the medal count for some reason. <laughs> we live in a, a meritocracy, right, where everything like, revolves around earning merit, privileges. Even the games we play, it's about victory points, grades in school, GPA, all of these things. The, the American dream is, in many sense, a quest for some economic and material glory. 
But it's not just on this high and mighty plane. We are people who long for glory. And it goes even down to the little likes on social media where our hearts are elated when the number next to the thumb up goes really high. Like Suddenly we think, yes, I've arrived. I've gone viral. But is this what glory really is? We are a people who long for glory, who long to be lifted up, who long to have success and prosperity and peace. But is that what glory is? Those things might not be bad in of themselves, but would we know true glory if we saw it? Sometime in the past week or two, I drove through a puddle of orange paint that somebody had spilled on the road. I don't know where this happened. I don't know when this happened. I just know I got out of my car and saw orange paint all splattered up on the wheel wells and the side of my truck. And I tell you what, I didn't really get worked up about it because it's a 2006. It's a pickup truck. It's got dents and dings in it. You know, it's a truck. Who cares if there's a little orange paint on it? But you know what I did get worked up over? paint on my tires i just bought those tires now they've got this orange gook all in them looks dumb and here's the thing if if i'm the sort of guy who gets worked up over tires having some orange paint on them tires that he put on a old piece of junk pickup truck that he doesn't really care about like do i even can you trust me to know what glory is And we all do things like that. We get worked up over things that reveal that we prioritize things poorly. The Proverbs would set us on a more righteous path, a path that is full of wisdom to understand glory rightly. And the whole context of Proverbs 30 is about this. It opens with this wise man considering God and his nature and his work of creation, and he is just filled with questions. He can't even begin to approach God and think that he has the wisdom to to look at God and, 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 and understand him or know him or figure him out. He's too glorious. Every word of God proves true. And so he devotes himself to studying the things that God does and the things that God has made to see if he can understand more of the glory of this God. And he does this with this, so often with this little uh, form of a proverb, three things, such and such, Four, and he does this over and over again, and it's a, it's a form of a proverb that, that reveals to us that there, there is order and structure and pattern in the world that the wise and discerning can observe and categorize and learn from. We can enumerate things. There are patterns to, to, to see. And so he sets himself to observe and see what patterns of glory are there in the world. What can I learn about God based on the way he's made things to be? But that 
structure of a proverb also gets at this thing, three, four. There's more than just the examples he gives. There's far more of these things that we could categorize, far more that we could enumerate, so we shouldn't think that these proverbs are exhaustive of all the ways that you can observe the glory of God in the world. But what they do is they bring us back again to this question. What is glory? Would we know it if we saw it? Or to put it more simply, where is your glory? And so we're going to consider what these Proverbs teach us. The first one, in verses 21 through 23, show us how easily we glory in the wrong things. The second, in verses 24 through 28, uh, show us some surprising lessons about glory that we can glean from creation. And the last, in verses 29 through 31, helps us learn what it means to recognize the true source of glory and how that might shape the way we live. So let's look at these things. The first thing I want us to do is look at this proverb in verses 21 through 23 that show us how easily we glory in the wrong things. It seems a strange thing. The earth trembles under these things. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. And, And if you read this and it sort of strikes you as wrong or odd or, or out of place, you you might be reading it rightly because elsewhere in Scripture, in fact, all through Scripture, the, the Bible exalts in the rags-to-riches story, right? The, the one who has nothing or, or is, a, is, is not, who's impoverished, who, who's suddenly lifted up and exalted. We find those stories all over. Joseph, right, who's a, sold into slavery and imprisoned, but he becomes the, the second most powerful man in Egypt. Or the widow of Zarephath, in the midst of a famine, who, whose son dies, who has nothing, but whose son is raised to life and who's given food and abundance to last her throughout the famine by the prophet of God. Or Ruth, Esther. Scripture loves a rags-to-riches story. Why then would this wise man look out at the world and see cases where it's not something good well because what binds these accounts together and what binds the accounts of joseph or ruth or esther together are something completely different here the theme is the danger of getting what you really want when what you really want isn't god What happens when you get what you really want, when the idol of your heart is given to you in its fullness? When the slave who was crushed and oppressed by unrighteous men rises to a place of power, apart from God, he too then becomes the oppressor. And have we not seen this time and time again? People's revolt and rise to power and then oppress the very ones. They once had power over them. Or the fool who knows nothing of God, who's hungry one day, but when he finally eats his fill, doesn't give one thought to what comes next, just goes out and lives as if he's conquered the world. When he's full, the world is his oyster, and he can do whatever he wants. 
He lives only for the moment, only for himself. The unloved woman. The Hebrew here is is a little vague. Is it that the woman is unloved or that she is unloving? Either way, it makes the point. She's unloved when she finally gets what she wants. Marriage but remains unloved apart from the love of God, apart from like, being married without love doesn't, doesn't solve her deeper problems. Or if she's unlovely, if she's a, a hateful and spiteful person and she's so embittered with all the people who are looking at her going, why aren't you married yet? Why aren't you married yet? And then she finally gets married and then she lords it over others. The sense of the passage could go either way. Or the maidservant, when she displaces her mistress, like Hagar and Sarah, bitterness, pride, resentment ensue. What happens when you get what you really want, when what you really want isn't God? The wise man looks out and he sees this happen again and again and again. And he comes to the conclusion that the seed of prideful idolatry is dangerous. But it's not just dangerous. It's universal. It afflicts the king and the servants. It afflicts men and women, the wise and the fool. There is none among us is immune to this. We have a tendency to glory in all the wrong things. So where is your glory? What is the fruit that your life bears? Does it bear the fruit of Joseph? Who did not succumb to bitterness, though his brothers sold him into slavery, but finds a way not just to forgive them, but to to save them. Does it bear the fruit of the widow of Zarephath, who was full of thankfulness and praise to her God for just having enough to live on, for just having her son? Does it bear the fruit of Ruth, who gave up everything for a widow who could give her nothing in return? Does it bear the fruit of Esther who risked her own life to save her people? Or does it bear the fruit of selfishness, bitterness, anger, jealousy, malice, pride, Do you live your life trying to figure out how you can get your way at home with your family? With your political adversaries? At church? In your job? Is your pursuit one of of comfort, one of your own dreams, your own desires? Are you glorying in the things you think will bring you happiness and satisfaction with no regard for the one who made you? 
Or can it be said that the things that captivate you, the things that you glory in, bear a different sort of fruit? The fruit of love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. You can tell, in other words, what you really glory in by the fruit you bear in your pursuit of it. What fruit does your life bear? Where is your glory? When the wise man turns his attention outward into the created world, he discovers some surprising lessons about glory. Now, we tend to equate glory with achievement or power or success or praise. But God's greatest work is often done in weakness and in frailty and things that are small and insignificant. This is what the wise man sees. He he considers ants, ants that we stomp on and step on. But when we're going hungry, they're living large because they have worked tirelessly over the summer to prepare their food stocks. Or the the rock badger, this little furry rodent-like creature that could not stand before the armies of the kings of of the earth. And yet... They cannot be assailed or assaulted or conquered because they make their homes in these little cracks and crevices in the rocks that no human person, no matter how strong, no matter how brave, no matter how well-armed, could ever get to. Or the locusts who, without any commander, march in rank. And my favorite, perhaps, the lizard. I have so many lizards around my house. I'm weed-eating and lizards, and I move the trash can. Lizards, they're, ev- and, like, they're everywhere. You can grab them if you're fast enough. Hold them in your hands. And yet, if they want to, they can sit on the throne of a king. They can crawl up on his, on his robes where they can't see. He can, he can even put, get that crown sort of situated on his tiny little head, maybe. You can't stop them. They live in palaces They are more royal than we are. Again and again and again, the world around us shows us how God uses small and insignificant things to reveal his glory. Certainly, there are large and terrible things. We read of this hurricane is approaching the Gulf Coast and we lift up those in its path and prayer. But how often does God show himself and reveal himself in a whisper? In a raindrop or the lack thereof or the abundance of in just the little things. You know, what this shows us is that we just get glory backwards. Not only do we tend to glory in the wrong things, we don't understand what glory even is. There are so many examples of this, but one that has struck me as of late is how we understand what 
Scripture says about women. Just go with me here for a minute. We look out at, at Scripture and, we, and, and things in the church are said like, well, women are more easily deceived because Eve was deceived. I've read articles where Christians say things like, well, women are weaker because they're just the helper. Deborah was called to be a judge because there wasn't a man good enough. And we can almost hear our own voices in the disciples' voices when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. What does he think he's doing? And yet we get it exactly backwards. Exactly backwards. For when God makes Eve the helper and gives her that name, it is his name, the Lord God Almighty, the helper of Israel. It's to her he makes the promise. And through her he makes the promise that there is coming one who will undo the curse of sin and redeem all of God's people. We read that Eve makes the first confession of faith in in light of that great promise. When she gives birth to her first son, she says, the Lord has given me a man. And in that confession of faith is the hope that that man will be the one to redeem them all. And that's not to mention Tamar and Rahab. We've mentioned Ruth. But even our Lord Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, appeared first to the women who had followed him, who had cared for him, the, one of whom understood what his death, that his death was coming and, and broke an expensive jar of perfume to prepare him for burial because she understood what was coming even when his own disciples didn't. And when he appears to those women, it's that company who go out and are the first witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We get get glory exactly backwards. The things that the world thinks are small, God uses for great things. The things that the world thinks are powerless, God uses to shake the foundations of everything in this earth. The things that we think are everything, God brings to nothing. And nowhere more clearly does he do this than at the very cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. How, what a ridiculous thought that God would defeat death by dying. That the sinless one would destroy sin by taking sin upon himself. And that in doing so, he could make the sinful righteous. What, what foolishness that the king of glory should die the death of a common thief. But in that shame... And in that humiliation, and in that brokenness, and in that suffering, and in that death, God worked gloriously 
to bring salvation to all who would believe. And though Jesus was nailed to a cross, in his death, he nailed to that cross with him every power and principality that would seek to set itself over God. All the things that we glory in are a footstool for his feet. God uses the things this world thinks are nothing to reveal his glory. So where is your glory? We, even in the church, have a terrible habit of foolish boasting. We have more people than they do. We don't struggle with those sins like they do. We have the right doctrine unlike those crazy people. We boast in things. And when we do, we sound a lot like the guy in the temple court looking on the tax collector saying, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. God, you're so lucky to have me on your team. Do we understand this enough that we could come to a place of such humility in Christ that we could glory in our weakness? I'm a know-it-all. I've always been a know-it-all. I was born a know-it-all. I'm sorry. I apologize to all of you. I remember I would ask a neighbor's mom these questions, and then she would give me the answer, and I would say, oh, I know. And she finally got tired of it. If you already know, why are you asking? And it just, you know, struck me. Well, maybe I don't know everything. I, there's no maybe about it. We don't know. We have no power to change hearts, to direct the course of this world, to fix the problems assail us and yet we shroud ourselves in foolish boasting rather than glorying humbly in Christ in our weakness I I wouldn't know how to share the gospel I, I can't do that glory in that weakness Don't use it as an excuse. The Lord's going to have to really work through you if he's going to bring people to Christ through you. Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this problem or to to help the people in the, the wake of that hurricane or in Afghanistan. Let's pray. We get together at 9.15 every morning and pray. Let's pray as a church and humble ourselves before him and say, God, we can't do anything. You've got to do everything. Help us follow you and participate in your glorious work in this world. Use our weakness to make your strength perfect. Where is your glory? We need to learn 
what it means to recognize the true source of glory. All too often, if glory were to pass us by, I'm not sure we would recognize it if we saw it. Like the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus, our, our eyes are, are hidden, like, like blinded to what's really there before us. But what this last set of Proverbs teaches us is that God has made anything that's glorious, God has made it glorious. You think about the lion, the king of beasts, mighty in stature, doesn't back down from any roar, it just leaves you quaking. Did the lion make himself that way? Did the lion take a special lion class on being especially glorious? Are there main groomers running around in secret? The Lord made the lion glorious. Think about the the rooster. What a ridiculous animal. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a Clemson fan. What a ridiculous animal. Strutting around, cock-a-doodle-doing like he's the king of the world. He doesn't care what you think. He's the king of the end house. And he's got all the confidence in the world to strut his stuff because God made him that way to be the king of his little fiefdom. Even the he-goat. Can you think of a more ridiculous animal? The goat running around, button heads with any... But he's not afraid. You come into his territory, he's going to headbutt you. He's going to headbutt a bulldozer. He's going to headbutt a trash can. He might eat the trash can when he's done with it. He doesn't care. He's got... A glory, all his own, and he doesn't look to you to figure out, should I be comfortable in my own skin? He doesn't look to to the farmer to say, is it all right if I go run around and, and butt heads with anything that I see? He doesn't ask for your opinion. He just knows who he is, and he acts on it. Because God made him that way. And here we see this king whose army, or more properly, his whole kingdom, all of his people are with him. What a glorious thing. Not a king at odds with his people, always fighting, always stomping, always oppressing. Not a people always rolling their eyes at the king, but a people united together. What a glorious thing that is. Who can make such a thing happen? Look out at our world and the political state we're in. Who could make such a unity possible? What we learn from this is that whatever glory we have, it's a real glory. But we owe it to someone else. It's not of our own making. We pursue things, we work, we try, we strive, but we we can't make things glorious on our own. Whatever glory we have is given to us from another, from the Lord God himself, the Father of all glory. He's made us in his image redeemed us from our sin and rebellion and made us kings and queens 
priests together in his heavenly kingdom. Invited us to share in his divine nature, to share in his glory, that we might go out into this world as light. To show forth not with our glory, but with his. So church, where is your glory? Do you have such confidence in Christ and who he is and what he has done for you, what he's invited you to do and to be in him, what he's, where he's called you to go, that you will follow him wherever he leads, even if it is through dark valleys? That you will trust his wisdom even when the whole world seems to be on taking crazy pills. Like, what in the world is happening around me? To rejoice in him. Even when you are assailed with sadness. To suffer for him and with him. Because you know his kingdom is glorious and it's worth it. Do we glory in Jesus? Are we a people? Are we known for being a people where Christ is exalted above everything? Everything. Do we have such confidence in him that we can we can be his people and shine forth with his glory because that's what he's made us to be. Where is your glory? You can't really answer this question without coming to terms with how you and I, all of us, have just pursued ridiculous things. how we have thought of Christ in sentimental terms or mere doctrinal terms, as if he's just a catechism. And not as the Lord of glory that the catechism points us to. We can't really wrestle with this question without taking a serious look at the fruit of idolatry that our lives have borne and wrestling with what it means for us to repent of that. We can't really wrestle with this question without giving up the foolish boasting that we are so prone to and learning humility in Christ. We can't really answer this question without learning what it means to actually be confident in the the real glory that God has given us and invited us into, the glory which is the Lord's alone. So where is your glory? It must only ever be the Lord of glory. Or as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, 
who is the Spirit. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray with Moses who had to veil his face because your glory reflected from it, brought fear to the people of Israel. But we pray with him, show us your glory. Lift Christ up before us that we might find in him everything. That we might see in the cross the power of God for salvation. That we might see in the way of self-sacrifice the way of eternal life. That we might see in Jesus what true glory is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.